Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now our host for this special edition of AMDA on the go, Dr. Arif Nazir. Welcome to the special edition of AMDA on the go. My name is Dr. Arif Nazir, and I will be your host today. In May 2021, AMDA launched an initiative called Drive to Deprescribe, Optimizing Medication Use in Post-Acute Long-Term Care. The PLTC setting has one of the highest polypharmacy rates, which increases the risk for adverse events and drug interactions. Drive to Deprescribe is here to help you optimize medication use in this setting. Now, in addition to quarterly online meetings, we are very excited because we are launching a quarterly podcast episode. Today is our first one. So let's get started with this topic, optimizing use of gabapentin. So let me just kick off by sharing my observation that uh, there has been a sudden increase in publications pointing to a trend where we are seeing increasing use of anticonvulsants in older population in general, but also particularly among post-cure long-term care patients. Uh, for example, uh, a couple months ago at, on the Journal of America, American Medical Association, uh, they shared a study that highlighted that the use of, uh, while the use of opioids and, and psychoactive medication, uh, psycho- antipsychotics have actually decreased from 2006 to 2018, there has been almost a 350% increase in the use of gabapentin and related uh, medications in older care settings. Also, just recently, I think a week ago, uh, we had this observational study and an accompanying article published in Journal of the American Geriatric Society that kind of validated uh, that observation, uh, showing us that in patients with dementia who do not have a diagnosis of seizure at this point, almost 30% of them are now actually using an anticonvulsant medication, most commonly either a gabapentin or a valproic acid. And that trend is increasing every year. So is this trend uh, helpful uh, as it has uh, been accompanied with some decrease in antipsychotic medication and opioid use, or could there be some unintended consequences uh, of this trend? What should be our role as physicians and practitioners and consultant pharmacists and nursing leaders to monitor this trend and to act accordingly? Well, if any of this intrigues you today, you will enjoy the next 20, 25 minutes of this podcast. So please stay with us because we have one of the best experts to really discuss all these issues on this podcast. Uh, Dr. Barbara Zorowitz, our uh, guest today, is the Senior Advisor at the Peter Lamy Center on Drug Therapy and Aging, and also Affiliate Professor at University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and a board member at the AMDA Foundation. So Dr. Zorowitz, welcome, and thank you for all your work and advocacy you do in regards to care of the older people. And let me start with this very basic but important question. What are the approved indications for gabapentin and maybe pregabalin use and what off-label uses it is often prescribed for, and also any thoughts on the almost 350% increase in the use of these medications over the last 12 years or so. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Nasir. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, surprisingly, when you actually go in and look at the labeled indications for gabapentin or pregabalin, which is uh, sometimes uh, used now just generically, but previously was brand Lyrica, you find very small number of indications. So for gabapentin, really, it's just labeled for use in management of postherpetic neuralgia in adults. And not even a primary anticonvulsant, but an adjunctive therapy for partial onset seizures. And when we talk about um, pregabalin, has a little broader indications in addition to the ones mentioned for gabapentin. It also has been labeled for use in management of fibromyalgia and neuropathic pain associated with spinal cord injury. Now, what's interesting about these two is you and I both know that most of the older adults in the nursing home setting are not receiving it for uh, an adjunctive uh, seizure medication, nor do they all have neuropathic pain post uh, herpetic uh, infection. In fact, what we're seeing in off-label uses of the gabapentinoids, I'll just refer to them as such because it really includes both of them, are really all forms of neuropathic pain beyond post-herpetic neuralgia, but also for musculoskeletal pain. And um, in the recent uh, Centers for Disease Control uh, updated guidelines on the appropriate use of uh, opioids for chronic pain, they reviewed two or three of the papers that looked at the value of gabapentin in particular for musculoskeletal pain as well. But there's very little information out there supporting uses of that nature. We also see it as part of multimodal analgesia regimens to reduce opioid use in perioperative pain. And often, um, in, in a recent study, many of these continued use of gabapentin up to 90 days post the surgical intervention. And so it's not unusual for us to be receiving new admissions to post-acute long-term care, maybe they were started as a, a perioperative adjunct and it continues um, without a clear indication beyond that first week or so. And then lastly, there's been an increase in use in patients with um, Alzheimer's disease and related dementias um, over the 2015 to 2019 period of time. And while, again, we don't have clear diagnostic indications, but it's presumably to offset antipsychotic use in patients who may be having related behavioral manifestations that can't be managed non-pharmacologically, but maybe also to manage pain. And so it's really almost become... Um, this bucketed form of therapy that's being used pretty extensively for a wide variety of indications, most of which have been inadequately studied um, and lack effectiveness and safety data. Yeah, so you know what I'm hearing from you is very few real indications, but a lot of uh, possible wishy-washy <laughs> indications, if you will. As, a, as an advocate and as a pharmacist, you must be concerned because I think there are a lot of side effects possibly from this regimen, right? Yes. Uh, in fact, not only um, 
have they both uh, been labeled as Beer's drugs, as uh, drugs that must have particularly gabapentin uh, dosage adjustment in older adults with renal impairment? But because these are centrally acting um, across the blood brain barrier and termed psychotropic from the standpoint of its central CNS activity, these agents affect individuals cognitively. They can cause blurred vision and dizziness. Sedation in particular is a concern because as these older adults who aren't on what is labeled uh, a uh, antipsychotic and may not be getting some of the monitoring that we all advocate for in older adults receiving antipsychotics who are in PALTC settings. But these folks may have some of the same predisposition to adverse effects. And because in this setting, we've got the, the potential for frailty and other many comorbid underlying conditions that just increase the risk of uh, adverse drug events. So it is concerning to me as a pharmacist clinician uh, that cares for older adults in these settings. Wow, those, those, those are some serious side effects. And, and you know, and totally concerning me also because from, from my seat on the bus as I work as a physician leader, I see that our, our, our prescribers and our providers and our healthcare workers and as a society, our comfort with these medications has significantly gone up. And to me, any effort to reverse that uh, trend of rising the use off-label for these drugs is going to be very hard. I mean, can you share any strategies that could help us in that regard? Well, the truth, sadly, is that we don't have good pharmacologic substitutes for how we used to use antipsychotics principally and still are in, in many uh, long-term care settings. But uh, and now the gabapentinoids, the really there aren't evidence-based alternatives, and so we've we've almost now found ourselves in a bit of a catch twenty-two where we've we may have potentially been trading one class of medication, in this case antipsychotics, uh, for another, in this case gabapentin in particular, neither of which are FDA approved nor really have adequate safety or efficacy data in the populations that we're seeing them used. Um, now, empirically, we know, um, because of my social work background also, that there are good behavioral interventions that can be implemented. In particular, we, we think about the science in that regard. It's multimodal interventions that really demonstrate the greatest promise. And that involves uh, stimulating the senses, many of the senses for the older adults. So exercise with good nutrition, um, caregiver training and how to best manage behavioral symptoms when they are expressed and that they could be pain or they could be fear or they could be other things that need that you need to intervene and divert the attention of the older adult. There are cognitive exercises that, that we can use in this setting. And of course, um, qualified individuals, social workers and psychiatric nurse practitioners or psychiatrists can do cognitive behavioral therapy and really um, get into what are their triggers and how can we 
uh, alter their approach to uh, addressing those triggers when they occur. And then some reality orientation. In many cases, they just need to be brought back to the present. And in all of these, stay very holistically patient-focused and centered on where that individual is and meeting them where they are, at least in their frame of reference. Um, and so what we really need to think about is how, as an industry, uh, PALTC can support advancing and increasing availability of nurse practitioners and social worker staffing in those facilities or others who can be trained to deliver some of those same interventions. And we really talk about that, even the new uh, state operation manual appendix PP recommendations are to make sure that facility staff are well trained, uh, aware of individuals who may have these as chronic symptoms of ARDS, uh, ARDD, but in addition, may be having underlying um, post-traumatic stress or other um, serious mental illnesses that contribute to these behaviors. So it really takes, it requires us all to take a deeper dive into who this individual is, what has been effective for them in the past, how we can help them in the present and moving forward. Wow. No, you, you know, some of the, some of the words you used in there just were so critical, right? I mean, again, it could be a whole session on how do we really manage uh, holistically, uh, you know, individuals with dementia and it just takes a team. And I'm just so jealous that you also have a social work background, honestly. I mean, if, if I had a chance to go back and train again, I mean, I absolutely would seriously consider getting social work training. I think social workers, effective social workers can be game changers when we talk about holistic care, of course, uh, and, and talking about person-centered care delivery. And they just are such an important part of the team with other team members. And, and talking about team members and the value, importance of that in, in my conversations, which by the way, I have many because of my role with nursing leaders across skilled nursing facilities and the senior living centers. And I always kind of, I often hear many of them say that, you know what, the, the real responsibility of prescribing and hence polypharmacy and medication optimization lies with provide, uh, prescribers because they are the one who prescribing those medications. I, I truly agree with that notion that eventually that yes, you know, the, the, the writing pen is responsible for that. But I also believe that uh, nursing colleagues and, of course, consultant pharmacists and other disciplines all could play a very important role in medication optimization. What do you think about that? Well, you hit the nail on the head. You really did. Um, it, you know, colloquially, we sort of say it takes a village and medication management is really a collaborative effort if you if it's done correctly. So by incorporating the individual skill sets and capabilities of many of the interprofessional team, we come up with a better plan, you know, than if we do it as an individual. No single physician, no single pharmacist, no single nurse is going to have the ability to put together all the facts and gather the data, interpret it subjectively and objectively in order to create as close to we can, the perfect care plan, and then um, be accountable for their role in the team and implementing that care plan. And so obviously not all facilities have the ability to put the entire collaborative team together, but I agree with you. If you think about all the people 
who should know and should be a part of informing the prescriber before the prescription is written. It'd be great if that can involve the nurses, um, any other ancillary staff in the facility, the social workers, the pharmacist. And let's not forget the CNAs who are really expert care providers and need to have almost a professional caregiver title role in order to really move this whole initiative forward. So it is a it is a team effort, uh, Dr. Nasir. I agree with you. Well, your comments have really warmed my blood and energized me, honestly. I think as a physician, my, my, my rounds always started with CNA and always end with CNA. I think the amount of information and quick access to meaningful intelligence, if you will, really comes from an engaged CNA. So I think this physician prescriber and uh, and a consultant pharmacist relationship with the frontline is just, just hugely important. And the other thing which you highlighted, which is so important again and worth repeating is that really the days where a physician was seen as wearing this red cloak and, you know, just save the day are gone. <laughs> uh, I don't think, I, I think that notion was never ever true, particularly in the geriatric setting. We absolutely need the, the power of the whole team. And, and, you know, I'm just so proud that the work which AMDA has done through Drive to Deprescribe, I, I really think that this has been just an amazing interprofessional effort. And, and I'm just so proud that with the messaging which AMDA has created, as I have not never seen more disciplines and more professionals kind of engaged in an initiative nationally than I've seen with, uh, with this issue. So thank you for, for your comments about the importance of teamwork. Now, I do want to kind of uh, specifically talk about some skill set on back to this anticonvulsants and specifically gabapentin and pregabalin like, and, and related medicine, how easy or hard it is to deprescribe them. Is there like really a scientific process you use you know, let's say you have a nurse practitioner who's listening to this and they are committed that next visit, they're going to try to deprescribe a gabapentin on their patient. What are just a few steps they should take to safely be able to do that? Well, in the ideal world, we would have a preset guideline or algorithms uh, to allow us to follow sort of a, a formula or a pattern. Um, and despite there being a wide variety of these as this group obviously knows because the drive to deprescribe has reviewed many of them. But unfortunately, in this category of medications, there isn't any evidence-based algorithm or guideline yet. And so when there isn't, we kind of fall back on, let's be intelligent about how we approach this. Gabapentin, like other psychotropic medications, Medications that can cross the blood-brain barrier and act centrally, uh, it, it, the effects are going to be a function of how high the dose is and how long they've been on the medication. So those are important two things to assess. Um, and if they've been on a small dose, just short-term, maybe perisurgically, just for a week or so, it can be stopped without any downward dose titration. However, the longer you have been receiving these uh, centrally active agents and the higher the dosing, when you get up into 3000 milligrams, for example, a gabapentin and higher, then you need to titrate down the dose more slowly. And as a general rule of thumb, uh, anticonvulsants I'm going for now in general, you think about maybe a 25% dose reduction for two to three weeks, maybe another 25% for 
another three, two to three weeks, and then 10% per week thereafter, monitoring carefully for um, a recrudescence of the underlying symptoms that the gabapentin was being used to manage. But then also, we are well aware that as you withdraw from gabapentin, adverse withdrawal side effects can emerge, and that should guide your rate of downward dose titration. And the common side effects that might emerge are anxiety, pain, nausea, um, or like I said, a reemergence of whatever the gabapentin was treating in the first place. So those are things we should look for. Now, the advantage we have with gabapentin, uh, first of all, we have three solid dosage strengths, 100, 300, and 400 milligram capsules. But then when you get into these more, these smaller downward dose titrations, you may need to consider using the liquid formulation, which is 250 milligrams per five mLs or per teaspoon. And that can help you do some of the final downward dose titrations until it can be stopped. Um, but look, it sounds easy when you listen to someone iterate it as I have, but in practice, we all know that when you start to decrease centrally active medications, whether it's antidepressants, antipsychotics, anticonvulsants, or others, it is very much an art at this point, more than a science, and must be handled very, again, holistically with the patient monitoring very close and emerging uh, issues addressed. And then the rate of downward titration just slowed down if need be. Wow, these are some of the best, uh, most to the point uh, instructions I have received regarding this. So I really, really appreciate that. Now, I think we just have a minute or two left. I just want to, being an, being an innovator myself, I'm gonna ask you my favorite question here. Let's say if you had one wish come true, how would you restructure clinical care delivery in the post-acute long-term care setting such that it will, by default, improve medication optimization? So maybe one or two ideas top of your mind regarding that. You mean if I were queen for the day? I love that <laughs> question. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Well, obviously, having greater availability of pharmacists and uh, you know behavioral health workers to help the prescriber. And that's gonna be true, not only in the, the starting point when we prescribe these things, but in the ending point when we are reevaluating to determine if we can de-prescribe. So having the expertise of individuals that goes beyond medications, I think becomes very important. Um, I think we need to be very strategic in how we provide better behavioral management training for facility staff. And I know over the last year or two, a lot has happened in that regard, but I, I think we still need more. Um, and then lastly, I'm a big believer in you get what you measure, not what you hope to see. So I work on the premise of driving in accountability and as a team, have a, have a team goal of keeping residents off psychotropics. Um, I know my son is a psychiatrist, actually, in, in the same area. And he dr drives down with team celebrations for keeping the cent centrally active medications 
off on patients with ADRD. So I think um, internal rewards and celebration is very important. Wow, what a great way to really end this. But it's just been a pleasure, uh, Dr. Zorowitz. Uh, I hope you, you enjoyed it. And I, I hope everybody who's listening in, in enjoyed it. Uh, a lot, a lot of best practices were shared indeed today. But, but you know, for your learning about deep prescribing and medication optimization, does not need to end here. Please visit AMDA's website for Drive to Deep Prescribe Initiative at pltc.org/d2d. And thank you so much for tuning in. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit PALTC.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.